Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. And uh, Erica, we took a couple of conversations recently to Mm -hmm. talk about the idea, the biblical idea of Sabbath, the idea of uh, the pattern of rhythm and of rest. Um, And we talked uh, once upon a time about how Sabbath in Old Testament Israel's mind uh, was like a whole way of thinking. It was it was a day once a week, but mm-hmm. it also was this pattern of every seven years letting land rest and canceling uh, debts and letting people go free. And we sort of gave like this little bit of a hint toward one other Sabbath-related idea that you might not know was part of the Sabbath franchise. It's the, <laughs> the idea of the, the year of Jubilee. Um, and this is one of those ideas that... Um, Many people don't know much about because it's uh, it it is rarely on people's like top ten Bible favorite Bible stories, and it comes from one, a book that is literally full <laughs> of laws and rules. So again, it doesn't get a whole lot of press. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out that this idea, the idea of uh, the year of jubilee, is an important idea. Uh, not only for its own sake, where you find it in Leviticus, but that it turns out to be something Jesus latches on to and maybe breathes a whole new life into. So, mm-hmm. so our conversation today is. The, the idea of Jubilee is sort of a spin-off of what Sabbath is all about. But maybe we need to first unpack, like, well, okay, what are we even talking about here? Yeah. So the year of Jubilee, um, as, as you said, Steve, in previous episodes, we talked about how every seven years um, the land was supposed to get rest. So people were supposed to let their land just go and let whatever grow, grow, and that's what you ate, that's what you harvested for that particular year. Yeah. So then every 40, you know, you had seven times seven, you get 49. So every 50th year... Not only were you supposed to let the land rest, but it also meant canceling debts, um, giving back land if it had been sold at some point. Because, again, land was was value. It was property. It wasn't, you know, we have land now, you know, our house sits on an acre, mm-hmm. half an acre, whatever it is. And, and that's a value to us. But we buy and sell land like it's nothing. Yeah. But land for for the Israelite people was part of who they are. Sure. It's not just property, but it, it's... It gives them life. There's a sense of being rooted in a lot of ancient cultures that we, we uh, may or may not have uh, mm-hmm. where we live in the 21st century. There, there are absolutely still, and you and I still live uh, in, in communities where you may find, like, that's the, the Smith family farm, and they've lived there for 100 years, mm-hmm. and it will always be the Smith family farm. Uh, but there are lots of people, more and more in uh, American society in the 21st century, uh, that don't have that kind of sense of rootedness. And so we mm-hmm. lose that sense of belonging to a place or having a place that's home. And because that was so important in uh, Old Testament Israel's life, in the years that uh, these wandering tribes occupied and lived in this land, uh, that it was so important that it became sort of codified that every 50 years there's a reset so that nobody lives mm-hmm. permanently without land or that nobody uh, permanently got stuck in the ability not to be able to, to provide for their kids and their family, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And that, I mean, we, we said this a couple of uh, conversations ago, but it's worth maybe reiterating that the idea behind Jubilee, the reason that's so important is that land is your way of providing mm-hmm. for your family for most people in an agrarian society. So again, we're not used to thinking, I need land because I need to grow wheat so I can eat. We tend to think of, I go to a day job, they give me a paycheck, and then I go to the grocery store and eat. Yeah. And again, so the, the model of how we do life is a little bit different, but that may be um, taps us into really what what a radical what a what a uh, amazing idea this whole jubilee idea was that 
uh, if every 50 years the land that had been lost because it got foreclosed on or somebody had, you know, can't, fallen on hard times and sold the land so that they could, you know, make a quick profit, then it went back to the family, the, was supposed to go back to the original families. It was a way of making sure that nobody, so that the Joneses weren't forever the, oh, that poor family who never can provide for themselves. Mm-hmm. No, that every 50 years there's a reset so that you don't end up with these giant mass conglomerates who own all the land and a bunch of people who own nothing. Um, because that's exactly what had happened in Pharaoh's Egypt, that Pharaoh came to own all the land and everybody was basically tenant farming what had been their own mm-hmm. land, and that's how you ended up with slavery eventually. But unfortunately, Steve, we don't see a lot of this being practiced. Right, and and why, why might that be, Erica? <laughs> I, I, I don't know, maybe because people are greedy and we're human and that's just what we do. Yeah, so, so despite <laughs> the fact that Leviticus, I mean, very clearly, Leviticus 25 gives us, like, here's what you're supposed to do. The, even the, the, the word jubilee, which is a, not maybe a familiar word to many of us, it comes from the, the Hebrew root for the, the rams when they blow like a trumpet uh, to shout, like, hooray, the year of debt cancellation has arrived. Um, but uh, there's very clear, not only here's what you're supposed to do, but here's, here's how the instruments you're supposed to use to announce it. But uh, they, there's very little evidence that it was ever actually practiced. And it seems to be because, yeah, uh, again and again and again, um, people decide they'd rather have money or rather have, you know, I, I would like to keep this wall, thank you very much. And if you're the one who's got the land, you're not going to want to give it up. Uh, and the later on prophets say things like, you were supposed to value your neighbor mm-hmm. and their livelihood and their ability to feed their kids more than your ability to make a bigger buck. Um, and that's sometimes something that the, the, the writing prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Amos, and the, the, the writers who have shorter books as well, will call people on. They'll say, like, you jerks, you, you want to skip past God's Sabbath commandments because you want to make more money. And mm-hmm. no, God's always... And, and, and it wasn't just about being religious. It wasn't just... Um, God insists that you be sitting in church and bored by a long sermon. No, it's the Sabbath. It goes back to you're supposed to be resting, and on Sabbath you're supposed to be letting the land rest and uh, releasing servants from their contracts, and you're supposed to be letting the land go back to the original owners on on the year of jubilee. And that's why the prophets seem to get upset. Not that God demands more people sitting and listening to boring sermons. <laughs> that's what preachers want, <laughs> but that's not what God was upset about. So, okay, for all those years uh, that the, the people of Israel lived in this land, in the, in the kingdoms of, of Israel and Judah, uh, it seems like there's very little evidence Jubilee was actually practiced. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's kind of curious that they were still willing to keep in their collective memory the scriptures that said, yeah, God told us to do this. I'm not like, this is sort of like carrying along with them the evidence that God's been telling us to do stuff and we are not doing a good job yeah. of taking care of our neighbor. Uh, so there it was, staring at, at them from the page, so to speak, and the prophets kept saying, God commanded you to do this and you wouldn't. Um, and then, almost like it had been forgotten, uh, like I, I picture like the, the old Disney movie based on the book Sword in the Stone, you're like, where there'd been the sword in the stone and the next king of England will be there, but after enough years where nobody can pull the sword out of the stone, everybody has forgotten that it was even there. And then... Um, a handful of prophets will say, there's this hope, there's this vision that one day, once again, God's year of favor will be practiced mm-hmm. again. Um, and again, it sort of like it emerges from the mist like Brigadoon and then sort of disappears until Jesus. <laughs> like, how, how, many, how, many, how many stories should go that way? Well, things are going one way until, until Jesus. Jesus. Dot, dot, dot. So what, what happens? How does Jesus enter this, this business? Because I don't remember any stories about Jesus the realtor selling or buying land. So, um, in, in Luke chapter 4, we, we find, uh, it starts with the temptation of Jesus. Jesus goes out into the desert, tempted by Satan, and he comes back, and this is the beginning of his public ministry. Right. And the first thing he says, out of the gate, he's, he's standing in the temple, he's 
been handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah these words, um, and it's found in Luke 4, uh, starting in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he announced me, uh, he anointed me, sorry, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, Again, set the scene. Jesus is reading from, quoting from one of the prophets, yes. the book of the prophet mm-hmm. Isaiah. So these words are centuries, centuries old by the time Jesus gets his hands on them. And we don't know for sure whether this is Jesus' choice text for the day or this is what was handed to him. There, there's some evidence there may have been some sort of a, a, a developing schedule or what might be called a, an early form of a lectionary mm-hmm. in, in first century Judaism in the synagogue level. But either way... The, the way Luke, the gospel writer, frames it as, this is important, this is our introduction, this is Jesus' first public words. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got the weight almost of, like, um, uh, Lincoln's inaugural address. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's got the feel of, like, of all the things Jesus could say to set the tone for, here's what he's all about, this is where Jesus begins. And, uh, I mean, that's an important move. So, so what he starts with is this passage from Isaiah that's about jubilee, right? Yeah. It's about, you know, the, um, you know, it says the release of the captives and, and recovery of sight to the blind. One of the things of Jubilee, besides just giving the land rest and giving the land back to people, was, again, as we mentioned, you know, setting people free from indentured servitude they yeah. had sold themselves into. Yeah. You know, and, and canceling debts uh, of people. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's like, okay, you all never practiced this, yeah. but guess yeah. what? I'm bringing this about. This yeah. is the purpose of, for me being here is to set people free. Yeah. But it's in a different sense. Yeah. And and it, it's I think it's it's significant that, that Jesus, again, of all the things that could have been spoken, or I mean, Jesus could have said, well, that's the text for today, but I want to preach on that. Nope. Jesus like runs with this. Is, mm-hmm. This is where he goes. And how very, very much this is Jubilee language, not just in that ending phrase of the year of the Lord's favor, but the idea of letting the oppressed go free and uh, release to the captives and and good news for the poor. I mean, mm-hmm. like we sometimes have this way of wanting to spiritualize Jesus that he only ever talks about religious things or warm and fuzzy feelings in our heart. Um, and and I, I mean, I don't know how many times over the years, and uh, surely I've done this too at earlier points in my life. Um, we'll say, well, in in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit," and that's true. And in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, Jesus just says, blessed are the poor, and leaves it hanging there. Um, you don't have to pit one against the other, mm-hmm. but to say, like, uh, th- th- we can't just say, well, Jesus doesn't have anything to say about how I use my money, because that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Jesus only is talking about spiritual things, and I and I and then I'm just going to collect my money bags to uh, help me deal with the anxiety that Jesus might question what I do with my money. Nope. Here, Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah, says, God, in this instance, is talking about good news for the people who have nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what Jubilee was about. So that the people who did have nothing weren't permanently the ones with nothing. This idea of there's a reset and that nobody became richer and richer and richer at the expense of other people with nothing and nothing and nothing and mm-hmm. nothing. Um, and that's, I mean, that, again, that, that's in, in a lot of ways a really radical notion that God cares enough, that God isn't just Adam Smith's invisible hand at the market that says, well, if you get richer and richer, that's just how it is. You, you know, th- that's your reward for being a good little investor. And if you have nothing, it must be because you're lazy. No, it's possible that if your parents made a bad mistake or the market turned bad when they were mm-hmm. growing up, and, and now you were born into a family that had no land, couldn't provide for yourself, that you're not stuck in that position ever. That's amazing that God cares about that. And then that Jesus says, like, this is what I'm about, folks. I'm about... Uh, God's kind of reign where nobody is stuck with nothing and where mm-hmm. in, in God's kingdom everybody gets to eat, you know? Yeah. 
uh, you know, you're talking about how we, we like the spirit of Jesus and he only talks about spiritual things, but yet money is one of the things that he talks about the most in right. the Gospels. And maybe maybe we've done a disservice uh, in our thinking about what's, what's quote-unquote spiritual and what's quote-unquote secular. I mean, these are mm-hmm. our modern inventions when that's not how, how uh, especially Hebrew thinking, saw the world. Everything but, has to do with God. Oh, yeah. Um, and we sometimes forget um, in our rush to... to um, to make money not seem like such a bad thing, we forget how easily money becomes like our number one idol. In mm-hmm. in this age where we don't have temples to Baal or a temples to Marduk or the Egyptian pantheon of gods around us, uh, we tend to think, well, we're past that business of idols. We don't we don't need those commandments in meal. We know not to bow down to golden calves, mm-hmm. but we do bow down to our money and our four hundred one k's and our you know bottom mm-hmm. line that kind of thing, um, and that in some ways a more powerful and insidious kind of idolatry because it doesn't come out and say, I am a false god. It yeah. just comes out and says, no, just put all your trust in me and I'll, it'll be fine. You can you know, say what you say, you worship God uh, all you want, but mm-hmm. just put your deep, you know, put your trust in your wealth. Um, and we don't realize how subtly, how easily we become, uh, we worship our, our, our money and our stuff, which again is why so often in the biblical mindset, especially in the, in the prophets and in the, in the Torah, there's this connection between worship of other gods or idolatry and what we do with our money and our stuff and our, our property. Don't give your heart away to other gods and don't put your trust even in stuff, in your mm-hmm. in your wealth, in your money, in your chariots and weapons for that matter too, says the psalmist. I keep thinking of the, um, you know, the, the love of money is the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. You know, in that quote and just, it, it's not that money is bad. Right. You know, and, and that's not what Jesus is saying here. Right. But it's, you know, what we do with that and sure. how we use that. Sure. You know, we can use money to help out the poor right. and to help bring them out of their poverty. Right. Or we can use it and we can hoard it and we can keep it to ourselves. And I think deep down that gets down to another really important idea that underlies all of the Bible, especially the Old Testament's understanding of our resources and of the land and of Sabbath. And that's that all of its gods in the first place. And it's only sort of with an asterisk do I get to call it mine. It's I'm a steward of whatever is mm-hmm. in my possession to take care of. But God, I mean, the the, the God we meet in the Old Testament is insistent throughout the, the Torah, throughout the, the prophets, all the land, all you ever have is mine. And God keeps saying mm-hmm. things like, to, like, it, like in the middle of a commandment, it'll be, you shall um, you know, give the land rest. After all, all the land is mine. Yeah. It's mine. I'm letting you use it. Um, and if that's true, then there is no matter of what's mine, I can do whatever I want with. No, it's God's land. And if God says, use your land or use your resources or mm-hmm. let go of it and give it back to whoever had it before, um, it, it's God's right to get to do that. And we, we tend to be grabbier. We tend to be like, no, it's mine. It's mine forever. And, and nope, all we ever have in life, including the breath we just took, is borrowed, is a gift from God. And that means our role is always, at most, that we get to be stewards who are in charge of making good use of what's in our hands, but never that it's mine, I can do whatever I want with it. God explicitly said, no, you can't do whatever you want with it, mm-hmm. it's mine. And it's true with our time as well. So when God commands Sabbath, uh, it's not, well, God, it's my time, I can do what I want with it. If I want to work it, no, God says you need to rest. Because maybe you don't realize it, but you're a jerk when you don't get to rest. <laughs> or because when you rest, it lets other people rest, and they need it too. That All mm-hmm. this is bigger than just me, and we have this way of coming to these commandments very individualistically, saying, well, no, no, it's, it's my land. Jesus can't mean that I have people would dare to be called to give up their resources for the sake of somebody else. It's mine. And God says, yes, I reserve the right to say, give up your resources for somebody else and your time and your mm-hmm. love and your energy. That's who God is. 
So then how do we live this out? Right. This is a big leap because, I mean, this is another time where I, like, we've, we've um, opened ourselves up a can of worms by saying, hey, here's an idea that you didn't know was in the Bible, the year of Jubilee. It's about canceling death. Oh, but we don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, and that's the temptation. I mean, the, the initial mm-hmm. temptation is to go, well, this, it obviously doesn't apply anymore because we don't live in Old Testament Israel. Therefore, dusting our hands off, it doesn't matter. This is irrelevant. Um, and, and it's tricky because a lot of commandments that arise out of the particularly litigious book of, Le- of Leviticus, it, Leviticus is this weird amalgam where side by side in one chapter, you might have these sweeping universal principles like love your neighbor as yourself, and then the very next verse down could be and don't have two kinds of crops in the same field. <laughs> and we're left going like, okay, are these all universal principles? Is anybody is this really that important anymore? No? Yes? Um, and there are these in-between categories like Year of Jubilee, which seems like it's a part of the big idea, the universal principle of Sabbath rest, which mm-hmm. is woven into creation. And yet at the same time, Jesus doesn't seem to be insisting on setting up a temporal government with a, as its Articles of Confederation, you will practice Jubilee year every 50 mm-hmm. years. And the early Christians didn't interpret it either. They didn't see Jesus as setting up a political kingdom and said, we're going to all follow the Old Testament commandments uh, by the letter anymore. But there, it's it, on the other hand, it's not something we can ignore, right? Yeah, because... What the early Christians and and Jesus, you know, realized was that law of Jubilee is meant for a nation, Mm -hmm, a nation mm -hmm. whose ruler is God. Right. And now they are living in a a time and a place where they are not that nation anymore. I mean, they're still the nation of Israel, you know, and and God's still theoretically their ruler, even though Rome has taken them over. Right, right. But you're no longer living in that kind of... the, uh, theocracy there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even that's a really important notion. I, I, I think I will confess, I, I realized this or read it far later in life than I should have, um, how the perspective of some of the Old Testament assumes an independent nation where you can set your own laws, and other parts assume you're living under foreign rule or under an empire. Mm-hmm. And all of the New Testament assumes you're living as sort of the occupied people as resistance literature. I mean, like, all of the New Testament arises Mm -hmm. under the thumb of Rome, and it doesn't assume you Christians will be the ones in power making the rules and setting the laws. It's, here's how to live when you live in a hostile world that is at best standoffish and sometimes downright hostile to your way of living. And so the New Testament writers, including the Gospel writers telling us about Jesus themselves, don't assume we'll take these things and now make them laws that everybody has to. But Mm -hmm. how will we live as a pocket, as a sort of countercultural community, where we don't always have the ability to make the rule? And again, there are some times where it's a good thing that we don't get the power to make a bunch of rules, because sometimes we think in the name of God, we've got this rule, that's a great (laughs) rule, and then we discover, oh, that was a stupid rule, or we didn't realize Mm -hmm. the consequences. So sometimes it's probably okay that we don't have that kind of universal power. Um... But sometimes we forget that the New Testament is written as sort of counterculture, how, how to live as God's people mm-hmm. in the minority or as a subculture and not as the dominant voice. And we do great violence to the text of the New Testament when we try and force it to be, and now we're going to make everybody do what mm-hmm. we say. It's meant to be sort of resistance literature or life uh, as resident aliens, like the way First uh, Peter talks about uh, the Christian life. And so because of that... The assumption isn't we get to make laws in our local towns or communities saying every year we'll have a jubilee year, but we're called to practice that kind of idea of letting go of wrongs or mm-hmm. letting go of debts against one another. And maybe that gets us into trickier territory, too, because all of a sudden that might push me out of my comfort zone. Yeah, because, again, it's a, it's that money thing, and mm-hmm. we like our mm-hmm. money. And so if we've if I let you borrow you know $200 for something and yeah. then you just never get it back to me, you know, 
well, I need that $200 right. thing. Right. <laughs> you right. know, um, am I willing to then say, you know what, it's okay, Steve, you needed it for that time and just right. don't and worry about paying me back for it. This is where it gets tricky because on the one hand, unless we're just going to completely disregard Jesus, we have to deal with it. The idea of the cancellation of debts, both literal financial debts mm-hmm. as well as the wrongs in relationship, that's an essential part of what Jesus has to say. Yeah. And it's it's you you can't go anywhere in the New Testament and but stumble across the notion of you can't say, well it's only in the gospels. No, because there it is in the epistles. Mm-hmm. You can't go anywhere without running into the idea of we've been forgiven this immense infinite debt between us and God and therefore we are called to forgive mm-hmm. one another. Um, and that this is not an optional thing for bonus extra credit seeking Christians. This is like our way of life. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of in a, in a sense the way God's economy runs. The 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 Jubilee of God is the permanent cancellation of debts between us and God, and therefore also between us and one another. But then we run into real-life situations where sometimes people abuse that or want to mm-hmm. abuse it, and maybe maybe there's an important place for us to have some conversation. Uh, for all the importance that Jesus puts on this Jubilee idea of, of the canceling of debts, does that mean that I'm then obligated um, when somebody... Um, ask me for money and then doesn't pay me back and then ask me for more money next week and then more money after that, am I obligated in the name of Jesus to keep giving them new money? No. <laughs> and there's a flat no. There you go. <laughs> and that's the end of that <laughs> No, because, you know, we have to understand that that while, yes, it's important to be sacrificial in our giving and it's important to take care of the poor and the needy, there there has to be a line that's drawn. Because we... we we need to still have money to take care of ourselves as well. And there, there becomes a point, too, where um, helping somebody else out or giving the money isn't really helping. You know, like, yeah, like, you're you know, enabling them to do something that maybe yeah. is not good for them in the long run. Yeah, like, is this is this about me actually helping somebody be back on their own feet? Or is this about my need not to feel guilty at night so I just throw money? And I, mm-hmm. that's so often our solution, too, is, yeah. well, let me just throw money at it, and then I felt like I've done my part. Whereas the idea of Jubilee Year wasn't that. It, was, it wasn't, we're just going to throw money around and pretend everybody's okay. But that sort of resetting of land then, okay, now Smith family, you got your family land back, and now... You're not stuck permanently on the bottom. Here's land you can farm so that you can mm-hmm. feed your kid. There's this idea of nobody being permanently stuck as a permanent victim. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing we have to acknowledge, too, in our history, is that sometimes Christianity has gotten itself in the corner of, because we want to be the saviors of the world, sort of perpetually infantilizing other people and being like, mm-hmm. well, you poor people, you'll never be able to get us. So we'll always just sort of keep throwing things at you. And that's a way of really denying the dignity or the worth of other people and sort of saying, we're, we're here to fix you. You're the broken, permanently broken people. And as long as you're there, that I can keep in my mind, you're the broken people, I can make myself mm-hmm. feel better. And we do that individually. We do that as nations. We do that as society. We, we did that for a while as Christendom, saying, you know, we uh, white European Christians are going to fix everybody else's problems instead of like, Maybe it's about how do we help people um, get the start so they're not permanently on the bottom anymore. Yeah. But uh, us not sort of paternalizing and saying, I'm here to fix you, you are broken. I mean, that, that doesn't recognize the inherent dignity and image of God in the other as well. Yeah, we're saying our way is right, your way is wrong, mm-hmm. and so you have to follow our way. Rather than realizing that you might have a good way, right. it just needs some tweaking. Right, right, right. Or for that matter, maybe there are things that that have happened, whether they are uh, beyond your control or maybe I'm a part of uh, why there's a problem, mm-hmm. that once we deal with that, you're going to be perfectly fine to sort of get back on your own feet. Yeah. And that Jubilee is 
more like that. It's not the permanent handout of you're incapable of ever doing anything for yourself. You'll always be this permanent mm-hmm. victim. Um, I can remember, I, I'm, I'm not going to get the, the words of the quote exactly right, but it, it's one of those really, really damning insights of Friedrich Nietzsche. Who, and, and Nietzsche is one of those guys who, like, you know, absolutely, you know, railed against Christianity. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot of things about, uh, about Nietzsche that Christians should be really wary of. I mean, he, and, and we sometimes think Nietzsche words are things that the Bible says. I, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, um, anything that doesn't kill me makes me stronger. You know, like the Bible says. No, that's Friedrich Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not Christianity. But he does have this point in one of his writings that um, Christians sometimes get this savior complex and mm-hmm. that we need to be needed. We sort of slide into cheap trick theology of I need you to need me. And so we sort of have this way of permanently casting others as you're permanently needy and my job is to fix you and if I do that if I let myself be the savior then I always feel better about myself or we collectively feel better about ourselves and you're stuck in that spot and that's not what forgiveness or about jubilee debt cancellation is about it's not this permanent arrangement of me the gracious forgiver I'm the hero look at my halo Mm -hmm. and you're forever the poor slob who can't get themselves back on track but it's about reset. It's about starting over so that we can mm-hmm. be on the same footing again. It's not a handout. It's a hand up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And bringing people up to the level where we are at. And so that they can, you know, again, get their feet on the ground and, and once again, be a part of society and be able to provide not only for themselves, but even, perhaps even for others yeah, as well. Yeah, And And the Jubilee, if, I mean, if we pay attention to the way Jubilee language works, that it's all about that. That it was mm-hmm. never about um, God saying... Um, uh, assign a, a handful of people who be the permanent objects of your pity and you just sort of throw your loose change at them and mm-hmm. then you won't feel so bad at night because you've helped out some poor people. They're kept poor because nobody ever really gets enough to actually get out of poverty. But yeah. Jubilee was about this sort of resetting of debts, uh, re, you know, a, a cancellation of debts so that we can be back on a, a fresh start. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe then that becomes a, a good jump-off point for the other way that forgiveness language shows up in Jesus' teaching. And that's not literal death, but our, our relational deaths or, or mm-hmm. the wrongs we do to one another. And that forgiveness is about a refresh or a restart and not um, that I have to keep going back to bad or abusive or difficult situations. That when Jesus talks about forgiveness... It's about not weaponizing the past instead of saying, um, and now that you've been forgiven or now you've forgiven somebody, you have to go right back into that bad situation and let them punch you again. No, it's, you punched me, I'm letting it go, I'm not going to take revenge on you, but I also don't have to keep knocking on your door saying, please hit me again. Oh, absolutely. Um, anytime I talk about forgiveness, I always mention this fact. You know, forgiveness means that you, you put the past in the past and, and you let it there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, it's not holding it against the person. Um, it's... And it, you've said this to me before, Steve. It's it's burying the past and then burying the shovel. Yeah, yeah. And I I heard that from a parishioner a long, long time ago, and that image has stayed with me. It's it's not just uh, that I'm going to say I forgive you, but I reserve the right to bring it up again anytime you upset me because that, like that's our human inclination mm-hmm. is for now. Now that we're having a good day, well, we're having a lunch together. That's fine. So I can be smiley, but you do something else that upsets me. Not only am I going to bring up that thing, but all the ten things you ever did in the past. Mm-hmm. Now I dig, dig those up. And forgiveness is about the ability to let go of things. In fact, the Greek verb for uh, that gets translated forgive is literally just the word to let go. Afiemi mm-hmm. means to let go of. So this is our moment to plug Elsa from Frozen. That it really is all about letting <laughs> oh go. God. Um, and that, that's what it is to, to, to forgive. And, and that maybe, I think, makes sense of 
how forgiveness is meant to be both freeing for the wronged person and mm-hmm. the person who's committed the wrong as well. I, I, I hear sometimes people will say, as making their case for forgiveness, don't forgive for the other person's sake. You need to forgive just for you sake, for your sake so you won't feel so bad. And I get it. Forgiving does have mm-hmm. this way of letting you go. Uh, and so I don't have to carry the guilt anymore. But no, in another sense, um, it's hard work to forgive and to choose not to weaponize the past. It, it's as much a gift to the person who gets forgiven. And we can't. both sides of those are true. I get a sense of relief where I don't have to keep dragging things along with me when I forgive somebody else. But also, it does set the other person free. And it's basically the refusal to keep living in the past. It's, mm-hmm. We won't keep going back to there. We're going to start over again. Which, again, is what Jubilee is all about. It's this big colossal communal reset button of we're starting over so that nobody is forced forever to carry the mistakes or the, the mess-ups of the past. But as you said earlier, Steve, that doesn't mean that you need to go back then to those, you know, especially in relationships. Right. You know, and I think of um, abusive relationships. And maybe just is, just because I'm a woman and my mind thinks that way. And yeah, I, yeah. I have friends who have been in abusive relationships. Just because you forgive the person that abused you in the past, whether no matter what that form that abuse took doesn't mean that you have to go back and then live with them you have to forgive them that is our call as christians mm-hmm. forgive the past let it go that does not mean then you have to go back and be in relationship with that person right. and allow them to to continue that abuse again right, with right. you and at the same time it allows the possibility that if there's change on the part of the other person that the bridge isn't burned that there's this mm-hmm. okay this thing happened in the past and I'm not going to, I refuse to take revenge on you. So, you know, you were mean to me, so I'm going to go key your car or kick you in the shit. No, I'm not going to go back to that again. You're right. Then I don't have to then go back into a difficult situation and uh-huh. suffer more abuse. But if there, if something happens in your world where you get changed or I get changed uh, and deal with whatever the garbage is that led them to mm-hmm. be abusive, there's the possibility because I haven't burnt the bridges or I didn't start a cycle of violence of I punch you back because you punch me. There's the possibility we can start over in a new way with a reset, but it's contingent on being in that kind of healthy situation. Yeah. And, and that means that this whole notion of forgiveness um, can be applicable too when there's situations like that maybe aren't about physical violence or domestic abuse, but like addiction or things like that. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so often in those in those circumstances where there's a family uh, who's got someone who's struggling with an addiction in the family, the the family has to get to the point of saying we're not helping them by continuing to feed their addiction or make excuses or to cover mm-hmm. for them. We have to have a, an intervention moment where we say to them, "No, this can't continue. Mm-hmm. We can't help you any longer because you continue to do destructive things." It doesn't mean that we're mad at you or we hate you. It means. We're letting go of the past, but we're not going to continue subsidizing your habit, or we're not going to mm-hmm. keep covering for you or making excuses for you. Now, when you get into recovery, the relationship can can happen again, but it's contingent on you need to get help. So it's either you need to go to a rehab, you need to get a treatment, whatever. But the, the, the idea of those moments of confrontation, whether it's an intervention or walking away from an abusive spouse, mm-hmm. it's not that... Um, you're consigning them to hell. It's to say this relationship can't continue as it is. It's destroying one or both of us, and in some ways probably likely both of us in different mm-hmm. ways, and can't continue this way. So that even the saying no to the abuser, I won't go back into that relationship, has a, an undercurrent of, but this is for your well-being, so that you can get help and that you can get in a position mm-hmm. where you're not so violent or destructive or get your stuff together. Same thing in many ways with, with an addiction situation. That is about, it's not that there's no hope for you, never, there's never any hope, therefore I'm walking away mm-hmm. from you, but sometimes the only thing that leads somebody to get the change is having their world shaken up, like they talk about hitting rock bottom with family members saying, this can't continue anymore. It's tough love. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's just saying, I love you enough to say, this can't continue. Right, right, right. 
And that, that maybe helps us uh, uh, underscore or, or recognize that underneath all this conversation from Jesus about forgiveness and, and underneath all of what Jubilee language is, mm-hmm. uh, that love is underneath it and that love isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling. I mean, our culture yeah. is terrible about talking about love because we treat it just like it's a feeling and mm-hmm. that therefore I will only do nice things for people I already feel nice about. And that that, that suggests then that Jesus' command to love enemies is nonsense because if I'm waiting until I feel nice about my enemies, I'm never going to feel nice about them. Uh, they're my enemies after all. They're acting like jerks. That's why they're my enemies. Um, but if love is more about... Uh, practical actions and attitudes, and that mm-hmm. sometimes the feelings follow the practical actions and attitudes. Jesus isn't commanding us to feel a certain way any more than you can command the endorphins in your brain to do what you want them to do. But I can act regardless of how I feel in a moment, and that means I can be good to the person who's been rotten to me, or I can let go of the debt even mm-hmm. though they've not shown any evidence of change yet. I don't have to give them more money, money. Future, yeah. but I can say, I'm not going to hold this against you anymore, because that becomes a black hole that sucks you in and me in. We're not going to mm-hmm. do that. And that in that way, love of enemy or love of anybody, forgiveness of debt, these are choices to make regardless of how you feel about it at the mm-hmm. moment. This is about how will I practice love and that love is an action and a verb before it's a fuzzy feeling or an adjective. Yeah. And for this to be the first thing, at least in Luke's gospel, for Jesus to say yeah. and, and to read and, and to proclaim as his personal ministry, yeah. as then, then lived out throughout his ministry up until his death on the cross and mm-hmm. his resurrection, because everything he did, even by coming to yeah. humanity, was because of his love for us. And, and I, I, I'm so glad you made that connection to the cross, because as Luke tells the story, the last words on Jesus' lips are, Father, forgive, forgive them, them, for they know not uh-huh. what they do. Um, and then Jesus sort of commending himself into God's hands, into your hands I commend my spirit. But that there is this sense of the forgiveness and the release of debt and the putting in the past the past is at the heart of Jesus' action and well as his mm-hmm. words. And so his first public words are, this is what I'm about, folks. This is what the Jesus agenda looks like. It's about setting people free and hitting that reset button, both in our relationship with God and teaching us to be people who practice that kind of reset with one another. And then he does it. His whole life is about that sort of refreshing, renewing, resetting, mm-hmm. forgiving, and that that's what love looks like. Um, sometimes... Sometimes we Christians need that reminder because we we know the commandment is supposed to love God and love neighbor, and we think it's supposed to feel a certain way. And I think honestly, the New Testament is much less romantic in its notions and is much less interested in how we feel, and is much more interested in how we practice, how we act mm-hmm. toward one another. And that part of what love, part of the beauty in a sense of love, is I will be good to you even when you're a stinker, or even when I'm tired and I don't feel like doing it. And that's part of what makes love in any real uh, relationship meaningful, that it's mm-hmm. not just, I'm only going to do this as long as I feel good about it, but I'll do this even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when uh, you were mean, or even when I'm tired, even when I'm cranky. Uh, and as a community, as a society, it means we do good to each other, even when we're not going to get something back in return. So, okay, we've opened that can of worms, uh, <laughs> and I at least hope that in our conversation about why Jubilee matters, we've talked a little bit about why... Christians can't just forget the 25th chapter of Leviticus. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't forget it. But what it might look like for us, not insisting that at, on your local ballot measure at your town you insist on a new <laughs> ordinance about Jubilee, but that we be people who practice that kind of forgiveness all the time, not just every 50 years. Yeah. Too. All right, well, uh, thanks for listening for good conversation, everybody. Uh, hope, hope you can join us next time. See you later.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.